0: Speaks Volumes is a podcast hosted by Mastering Engineers, Matt Leffler-Schulman and Dan Coutant. We talk about supporting our fellow engineers, work-life balance, and maintaining good mental health in a stressful and competitive industry. Our guest today is Justin Perkins, a Mastering Engineer based out of Madison, Wisconsin. He has worked with The Replacements, En Vogue, Old Dirty Bastard, Busta Rhymes, Jellyfish, Michael Franti and Spearhead, G Love, The Figs, and many more. Before transitioning to mastering full-time, he also spent time recording and mixing at Butch Vig's Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. We talked with Justin about the evolution of the mastering process, the pros and cons of so-called AI mastering, the importance of monitoring, upgrading your studio's weakest link, and coping with and learning from mistakes. This episode's music is brought to you by Have Mercy from Baltimore, Maryland, produced by Brian Swindle. For more information on Have Mercy, point your Web Electrons to havemercymusic.com. For more information about Justin, go to justincarlperkins.com or mysteryroommastering.com. We like to start out with a, a thumbnail about who you are, where you got started, and how that journey led to where you are
1: now. Okay. Well, my name is Justin Perkins, a uh, mastering engineer uh, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, and basically got into mastering a little bit out of necessity, recorded and mixed a lot of albums and it was before the internet era. And it was in a small, I wouldn't say a small, it was in Green Bay, the smallest NFL franchise market town in the NFL. So a fairly small town and not easy for bands to get their album mastered uh, at an actual mastering studio because it meant traveling, mailing it, and not hearing it till it was done. Revisions over the internet weren't really a thing. So I just ended up mastering a lot of the stuff that came out of that studio. Um, Not because I wanted to, just out of necessity, and over the years, just kind of Realized that in my area there was a need for affordable mastering for independent bands and artists there was a studio in milwaukee that did a lot of stuff some bigger stuff especially at the time it seemed really bigger stuff but he always had this like indie band discount rate that was sort of unofficial and i'm like oh i don't want to it almost sounds like you're doing a favor or giving a handout or you know are you really getting their full effort here are you just kind of just doing it on the cheap in between projects so i felt the need for an actual mastering studio for that catered to independent bands and artists so i ironically rented his room when he moved to the east coast started a proper mastering studio you know with and registered it with the government to pay taxes and all that stuff and uh yeah that was 14 years ago and it's gotten better every year so i'm still doing it Did you go to school to learn the art of engineering? No, I went to the recording workshop in Ohio, which at the time was, you know, I found it in the back of a Rolling Stone magazine or something. And, you know, they didn't do anything for job placement, but also I didn't really want to move to a major city. Um, But to be honest with you, it was still pretty cool because... I got to get my hands on things I wouldn't normally get my hands on. It was it was right before the era of buy a Digio One or an MBox and start recording. You know, it, I had a cassette eight track and maybe a digital eight track at that time. But you know, it was a way to get my hands on stuff where what you know bigger, more real albums were made. So that was pretty cool. But that was only a two or three month program. I ironically skipped the Pro Tools week or two and flew home because it was right before. Pro Tools was so ubiquitous, I was somewhat anti computer at the time, for whatever reason, and uh, skipped the Pro Tools part. So I learned all the Pro Tools on my own, but you know, they taught you the fundamentals of basic signal flow, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, no college and no uh, audio school, just mostly learning, learning by myself, trial and error. Right. So, so when you were starting your business,
0: did you have other engineers, mastering engineers that you could sort of bounce ideas off of, or you know, learn how to do something you didn't know how to do.
1: Not really. the The guy that owned the studio in Green Bay taught me a little bit about mastering. He, you know, he had the TC Finalizer, and Waves L two plugin was just starting to be a new thing. And he had CD Architect, uh, which was made by uh, actually a company here in Madison called Sonic Foundry, which got bought up by Sony um so you see the architect to put the albums together and you know put some basic limiting make it loud and all that stuff it's pretty primitive mastering but it was at least a way to lay out a record you know once the mixes were done so he taught me a little bit about that but not mostly just enough to get the job done and then figure it on my own um the guy who I mentioned that I um rented his mastering room he taught me a little bit but not like you know i would bring tapes there to drop off but i wouldn't like look over his shoulder and ask what he was doing I mostly sit in the back for a couple songs and then leave the only thing he really helped me with is i said what software are you using because you know you're doing stuff that you can't do in pro tools or logic or cubase and he said i use wave lab but it's for pc only the guy will never make it for mac and that at the time it was pc only so he helped me like understand you know like some of the mastering software that existed and why it existed, but he didn't teach me, you know, there's no mastering. And I basically got Bob Katz's book and just studied myself and trial and error. And, uh, you know, in 2009, I just sort of, I was still doing a little mixing and recording, but mostly tried to make the transition to mastering hundred percent, which took a couple of years. But uh, eventually got there, actually pretty quickly got there. And so there was no plan or no formal training. I didn't study under anybody. It was just figuring it all out myself. Because being in the upper Midwest, there's just not a lot of resources.
0: I think the Bob Katz book is pretty much all you need.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly, you know, Bob is Bob. But it really opened my eyes to a lot of other parts of the process that is more than just what People think it is with stereo processing, you know, like the plug-in companies and the AI companies want you to think it's just stereo processing, but there's a whole lot more to it. And it really opened my eyes. To, and, you know, that was the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, I guess you could say.
0: So I wanna talk about AI, machine learning, artificial intelligence with you. I know you are not a fan of AI in terms of how it is being pushed on engineers as a tool for mastering. Sort of on the other side of AI mastering, do you feel like that there is any place for a mastering engineer in terms of their workflow or helping alleviate uh, the minutiae?
1: Yeah, I think we're in the beginning stages of that happening. I'm not so much against AI, I think it has a place. You know, if you do library music and you have a hundred cues that need to be sort of level matched and roughly the same EQ. I mean, running it through there is a possibility. I guess what what really bothers me is how AI mastering has taken over and kind of bastardized the mastering process and what we do every day. You know, if, if you or I just took a, a file or a collection of files and turned off our speakers and turned off our headphones and just looked at the meters and made it look good on meters and then sent that folder of files back to our clients i would say most of them wouldn't be super thrilled with it and that's basically what the ai stuff is doing it's guessing and you know the biggest clue is that if you run a song through the ai mastering and then run it back through it's going to keep guessing and try to do more stuff whereas if i if you or i mastered a song sent it to the client and the client sent that master version back we would probably say you know it sounds pretty good or there's really no room to do anything or need to do anything like it's it's basically cooked and you know the, the ai software is not going to do that it's going to keep guessing and it's like well if you're if you're running it through a second time which it was just kind of a silly thing to do but it proves the point of like if you're making more changes the second time through why didn't you do that the first thing? you know why is it's just like it's just kind of just like com- compounding garbage and there's so much other stuff we do in mastering like sequencing records you know the songs just figuring out the song spacing. I'm super OCD about mouth clicks. And, you know, I, I do every project I do gets kind of a detailed comb through with RX for mouth clicks. Even sibilance now. I don't even try to do DSing much with plugins or hardware. You know, maybe a little few touches, but I just go through and, and DS with RX because then it's done because I found it's way more effective than trying to, you know, throw throw something at it that might catch the s's but might be catching too much other stuff or sometimes honestly some ds's i think they kind of launch the s's and make them even louder or at least more obvious whereas with rx you can literally highlight the s and dim it you know there's no attack and release or and it's only touching the, the s's it's not getting the hi-hat or the shaker or the acoustic guitar so you know there's so much more to mastering than stereo processing so you know i've been pretty vocal about it but if they called it Automated stereo processing—that would be a very accurate term—but they want to sell this AI mastering because they think it's fun and cool and easy to like put mastering engineers down. But there's so much more that happens than stereo processing. You know, it's quality control in the end, and then as little processing as you can get away with doing to make it sound great. You know, and and they're kind of good for, let's say, you're mixing a song or an album and you want to hear how it's going to sound when it's pushed super loud and you don't have a limit or you just don't wanna do it yourself. I mean, a competent engineer can throw on the FabFilter L2 and push it louder and see what gets squashed and what pops out and stuff like that. But some people might not wanna do that. So, I mean, they're good for that, but they're not gonna give you a finished product that's ready for, aside from maybe a digital single, they're not gonna give you a finished product that's ready for you know streaming, CD, vinyl, cassette, all the stuff that we do and making sure it's all cohesive. It's just it's just kind of like the McDonald's drive-through of audio. I mean, sometimes you got to run through the McDonald's drive-through if you, if you don't have much time. I always say, you know, if, if you are celebrating an important event in your life, you're going to go to dinner at a nice restaurant with a, like a nice chef that puts time, you know, cares about the meal. Um, and that's kind of how I feel like, you know, if, if you're putting on an album, it should be something you care about. And to put so much hard work into it and then throw it through through a computer grinder, you know, it's just kind of crazy to me. I mean, even some of the best mixers that I do mixes for, you know, there's clicks and pops here and there. There's stuff that can be addressed that a computer's just not gonna know. And then the song to song relationship thing, you know, like if, if we did just turn off our speakers and headphones and look at the meters, and process ten songs so they look good on the meters. If one of them's like a piano vocal song, and the rest of the album is d- dense pop, that piano vocal song is going to sound way too loud. The other songs are going to sound small compared to that. So you have to understand like what's what's the dynamic of the album and things like that. So it just really bums me out that they they insist on calling it AI mastering. It's like it's AI stereo processing, and you know to try to yeah, it's really just kind of sad for the people using it that they think they're getting away with something, you know. They're getting their songs stereo processed. They're not getting their songs mastered. And there is a difference.
0: I love what you talked about with running the song the master through the processing a second time and it not knowing to not do anything. Um Yeah,
1: we would maybe- never do that. And if we got like a mix from like a Serbin or like Manny, American, you know, these guys that do crush their mixes pretty hard and the mastering is basically listening through it and doing the possibly nothing. If you do nothing that you, you know, know, in a sense you've mastered it because you've put it through your quality control ears. You know, for me, it'd be hard to not remove a mouth click or pop or, you know, a strong S here and there. But basically, you know, we wouldn't run it through the same thing as if we got like a nice unlimited mix of a rock band with two guitars drums bass vocals where there's no limit and in the, in the sky's the limit as far as you know going through the analog chain and stuff like that if we got a, a mix like i spoke about earlier where it's already pretty loud and crushed i mean I, I can't speak for you guys but that's definitely when you stay all digital and do as little as possible as opposed to when you get a nice traditional mastering project so Yeah, it's just guessing, and it's it's just kind of sad that to see even some human mastering engineers partnering with software companies to tell people that their projects are mastered by going through it, it's, it's, you know, it's stereo processed, there's still more to the job, except maybe, like I said, digital singles, that's the one time where you could argue that it mastered it, but still, did everybody check the heads and tails, is there three seconds of hiss before the song starts, or Yeah, there's no quality control even with that. Yeah. So, I mean, you, yeah, it's just, you know, I, I've kind of, I think you and I both sort of said, you know, we got to start calling it human mastered. Yeah, it, We've got to start a new name for it because the term mastering has totally been overrun with, by the plugin companies, as far as what, what it means, what people think it means. And it's not just making it louder, you know, making it louder is the most noticeable thing usually, but there's a whole lot of things you need to do in order to allow it to be loud without sounding harsh, and and it's it's kind of genre dependent too. I mean, I wouldn't master a traditional jazz record like I would uh, electro pop album or something. It's just you got to understand what's kind of genre appropriate or typical, and then of course the client weighs in about what they would like. But you know, if they tell you to do your thing, which happens a lot, you need to understand. If you're doing a classical album, traditional jazz, punk album, EDM, it's very different in terms of final loudness. You know, there's no industry standard. I love when people tell me, you know, do the industry standard radio ready mastering. It's like, oh man, there's there's no such thing as that. And there's just I, so I, many I, industries too, for that matter. Yeah, I kind of know what they mean, but I always just have to say, send me a song that you like, the loudness of, and I'll listen to it on Apple Music and. That helps me, but you know, then there's also the, I just got one the other day where it's like, we want to preserve the dynamics, but we want it to compete with like Taylor Swift and Adele. And I'm like, no, you you can't do both. It's like telling me you want a black and white. People say that to me quite often. It's like, no, you can't, it's not, it's an either or thing. It's not a both thing. So anyway, sorry for the uh, additional long rant. No,
0: all makes sense. Um, thank you so much for the, for the details. Some of what Justin is
2: saying is kind of making me think about, you know, I come from an older school with mastering. And, um, you know, when I was an artist, when I was in a band, when I was young, I knew very little about mastering. Uh, But I know when I started to learn more about the studio and how the studio works and what each process kind of adds to the production, I started to kind of feel like mastering was... You know, where you go when you want to run your mixes through the really nice gear and, you know, kind of get that, that layer of sound that you just can't get unless you go to a real mastering house, you know what I mean? So right now, if I look around in 2024, I, I feel like that's completely changed. Like, artists don't think like that anymore at all. I feel like analog signal processing really does not factor in much to um you know whether or not a client will hire you to master and and i'm just curious what justin thinks about this you know i mean uh, we spent so much time getting all the the most musical sounding gear and i want to have something that nobody else has you know i'm still a big believer in analog signal processing it's still you know a very large component in what i do but i feel like artists and and uh people that we're trying to entice into hiring us as mastering engineers they really don't know much about that stuff and they really don't care at the end of the day even the ones that do know they don't care as much as they used to but what do you guys think about
1: that I, I think that's true I, I also come from a, probably the same era where like if you didn't get your CD ma- your album mastered you would have a quiet CD like there like most Studios didn't have the tools to make a loud CD master um, and then that all changed you know over over time and I also came from the era of, like, we would, we would self-make cassettes, you know, not when the cassettes were originally around, not now that they're cool again. But, like, um, and the first time we had a budget for mastering, you know, we did a record for Lookout Records, and we didn't even ask, we just knew that they had someone that did their mastering. It was John Golden, who's, who's great. And you know, we just sent our mixes to, to him. And we didn't even really think to like ask for changes. You know, we had a few notes because there was a a song hidden between two tracks in the middle, like where side A and B would be split. And he nailed that. So I mean, it wasn't we weren't splitting hairs. We weren't like you know, can you, you know, can you add point two more dB of of this frequency? It was like, okay, the record's done. Let's let's move on because this is what this guy does. For a living, and everyone uses them, so he's we just rolled with that, and that's kind of how mastering was back then and then it and then it you know got really democratized where like mix engineers are using a lot of the same tools that mastering engineers are using and there was a point in time where people that cared about what gear you're, you're using could be some of the more annoying clients because they think they know what's going on, and sometimes they do sometimes right. they don't. <laughs> But those are the kind of clients where it's like if they get a little too um, annoying, it's time to just say, well, if you know how to do this, then you should be doing this and not me. You know, I'm not here to just – I obviously take revisions from clients, but if they want to tell me like – you know, the worst, two are like the screenshot clients where they take your masters and bring it in their DAW and then send you EQ screenshots. Occasionally that's helpful, but also at, at times it's like, well, why aren't you doing this if you if you know all this stuff? Like – you know i can take notes from you but you know if you're gonna go down that rabbit hole then perhaps you should be doing the mastering but yeah i mean it's to a point i had an interesting experiment where i was most projects happen really quickly but i was mastering this album for this guy over the last almost year because he was going through some management changes and they kept doing mix revisions like crazy and uh uh let's see i mean i did almost i did the record at least twice i think but then at the very end, they sent me like four new mixes, almost half the record, and it was at a point in time where I didn't have, I had everything taken out of my studio to redo the floor, so I was only working digital, and I was like, okay, this is going to be the test, like, because it was kind of a rootsy album, like really Americana roots, the kind of stuff where you would normally want to use the analog gear heavily and kind of, you know, sink your teeth into it, but I didn't have a choice there under a deadline. I was just working digitally on my mobile setup, and i did the four songs, and it just got approved as any other project would. And my point was like, it got approved, they were happy with it, and I used all digital tools on half the songs. So the other component to that is digital stuff is getting so good that the divide is a little bit less. But I mean, I still love getting a project where there's no limit on the mixes, and it's like got a lot of real instruments, and I can really lean on the analog chain. But I'm starting to see a trend where even the files that say no limiting in the file name are still pretty squashed. And it's like, I used to push back more and say, can we get no, non-limited versions? But that leads to more problems and solutions a lot of times because A, the mix and balance can change. B, a mix error can change. Like I've gotten mixes to master, not when I requested it, but like where the backing vocals are muted. And I send the master out and the band's like, it sounds great, but the backing vocals are muted. It's like well, obviously I didn't do that. So my point is like, when these non-limited mixes are getting created, no one's listening to them until we master them. And then the, then that's when they catch the errors. And that's, that can be super annoying because you know you can't just drop it in and in five seconds or even five minutes, get a, a new master. There's a lot of, and then people are like, well, don't you save your settings? And it's like, I do save my settings, of course. And I logged analog settings, but there's still a lot of work that has to be redone. Um, You know, if you're using analog gear, it's real time. And and that's not even the bottleneck for me. The bottleneck for me is the RX stuff. And then if I'm not using analog gear, I find that it takes longer to render because you're using more plugins. So it's, to me, the analog versus digital isn't like a time thing because like if I do a record with analog gear, yeah, it takes 40 minutes to print it through the gear. But then my Wavelab renders are like super fast because there's just basically a limiter on, you know, the final limiter. But if i'm doing the whole record in the box there's no analog time but i'm using typically more plugins and they're usually you know i'm at 96k and they're usually nice plugins that eat up a little more cpu and then the render takes longer so it's kind of a horse of peace in that regard but yeah i mean i just i think i'm getting a little off track of your question but um i think people don't really care about analog or digital anymore or whatever they just you know the biggest thing is that they're happy with the work and that you're easy to work with i think is what, what it comes down to um you know you could have like every piece of analog gear in the world but if you're hard to work with or hard to get a hold of people are probably going to go elsewhere to get their project mastered because they want to put it on distro kid tomorrow
2: right yeah i mean i i, I agree with all that i i think that um the landscape is different now and um I guess that's a good thing that clients are more motivated by results than you know i guess what you have in your desk but at the same time we spend all this money
1: <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> now... i just i just started to look at it as tools like i had a lot of we had a lot of work done at our house this year and i didn't once ask the plumber what kind of wrench he had or the flooring guys what kind of tools they were using i'm like you guys do this for a living every day like i'm going to get out of your way and let you do your job and 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 everything turned out great so i mean i know that's kind of distilling it a lot but i think for some clients that's really what it what it comes down to is you know they they, they don't care about the tools you know it's just it's just like when we do something you know that we just need done once in a while like say so like a plumber or electrician or getting your car fixed or something that's just you know and I hate to make I hate to make it no fun like that but I mean you know it is fun you know to have you know I feel like the tools can make your job easier and enjoy more enjoyable to do but you know
2: the one overriding overarching aspect of being a mastering engineer and being successful and you know, turning out successful results is monitoring, monitoring, monitoring. <laughs> so, um, I feel like people say, you know, describe mastering as like you said earlier, um, bus processing or, you know, running stuff through certain pieces of gear. I, I know I've seen people post on social media sites. Um, you know, should I rent this piece of gear for my mastering project? So in other words, you know, they have absolutely no experience with this piece of gear, no familiarity with what it does, what it sounds like, but they want to rent this box just because it's like, you know, a marquee box uh, in the gear world, and they want their masters to run through that. Kind of like what you said earlier, Justin, about, you know, clients telling you what to use on their masters, even though they have no idea <laughs> what the the end result of that is going to be. You know, I pre- I preach this to my clients all the time who ask me about tips and tricks. It's just like, What's your monitoring setup like? And nine out of ten times, they're mixing on headphones or they're mixing on, you know, uh, I don't know, laptop speakers. Yeah, you 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 know the rest, right? So, I don't know. I guess I, I'm just asking you guys, you know, to reinforce me here about telling people, you know, the key to making good sounding masters is 100% monitoring, like absolutely. And I I almost feel like I could use any tool either plug-in or uh, analog and get pretty close to the same exact place just because I understand so well what I'm hearing in my studio and I'd be interested to hear your guys thoughts on that
1: yeah I mean I'm guilty of it too when I was younger I, I underestimated monitoring you know how important that is and fought myself trying to mix records on really poor monitoring situations that you know looking back I could have mixed the album so much faster and better if I just had correct monitoring or better monitoring and I see people posting pictures of their mixing studios and like regardless of what speakers they have one's up here and one's down there and it's on a table and it's not even ear you know at their ear level and it's just it's just kind of a mess you know it's like the dirtiest lens you could imagine to try to you know it's one thing if you want to record and mix do that but then the other advantage a mastering studio has ideally is is very very high resolution and accurate monitoring so we, we can make decisions about how much low-end is right and how much high-end is right and and uh you know catch things that are just being missed on and it's not all about money but you know lower less expensive speakers you know they're just not as revealing uh so i mean yeah i mean if i had to build a new mastering studio today monitoring would get you know and, and room acoustics would get nearly all the budget you know if if, if i was starting over today Cause that's that's really what's most important in my opinion you know the digital tools have gotten so good that you know having a nice desk full of gear is very nice and i use it a lot but yeah monitoring is just crucial um and you can get great monitoring with uh, i in my opinion odyssey headphones you know if, if you don't have the ability to outfit a room with speakers and acoustic treatment i mean the odyssey headphones and a great headphone amp and digital to analog converter i mean you're you got a great almost nearly world-class control room on your head i mean i guess i've never i don't do mixing anymore when i used to try to mix in headphones when i would use like these sony's that i'm wearing now for this podcast i would sometimes get off track or i would think the vocal was like plenty loud and then i listened to on speakers and be like wow the vocals way too loud or way too quiet so i would misjudge Like the levels of instruments in headphones and i don't know if that's still true with the odyssey because i've never mixed a record on the you know i've only mastering for a while now but as far as mastering goes i mean you can really tell tone and character and obviously quality control and a whole bunch of things on those headphones so i mean we're really lucky to live in a time when in my opinion really really useful headphones um exist i mean i bounce between my speaker setup and my headphones set up throughout the day depending on what tasks i'm doing and it's totally seamless and i I love them both for different reasons and i'd be happy if i only had could use one or the other although i find quality control easier to do on headphones and of course they're way more portable than speakers but that's kind of
2: my opinion on that like justin just said i think he he kind of you know hit the bullseye there like until you experience like outstanding monitoring yes. it's, until you sit in front of like in, amazing sounding speakers in a you know mastering room or any kind of room uh and have that experience you know you, you really just don't know what you're missing in a way um yeah. but no i totally agree I with think, that yeah yeah i think that's probably why most people you know emphasize the toys instead of the monitoring
0: i i feel like for me it's almost like the monitors are sort of like or monitoring speakers, et cetera, are sort of the the inverse of what the gear is in that, you know, I had a bunch of other sets of speakers before, but, you know, I'd always hear the high end, or I'd hear, you know, the vocals, or whatever we were listening for was always there. With the speakers I have now and how my room is tuned, the speakers almost disappear and that it's something I didn't know I wanted or wanted to hear until it happened and for me I feel like that's the system I want and that that accuracy I guess is when those speakers disappear
1: um yeah and I mean it's easy to look back and say this is what I should have done but for me I was just always upgrading my weakest link like What's yep. my weakest link right now? And sometimes it's your speakers and sometimes it's something else. And then yep. just trying to like, you know, earn a living doing audio, taking whatever's coming your way. So, I mean, yeah, in a perfect world, if you win the lottery or get an insurance settlement, yeah, put 90% of that into monitoring and acoustics. But, you know, the, it didn't, for me, it didn't happen that way. It, it came out of a cassette 8-track to a digital 8-track to a half-inch 16-track to uh working at a studio that had uh, a really crappy pc that crashed a lot to buying remember those emacs they're like big bubbles i bought an emac and an mbox mm-hmm. and let's learn pro tools so that i could work at another studio uh which was smart studios in madison because at least i knew pro tools then and then so it's just always upgrading my weakest link and you know at one point i was really excited to get focal twins and those are fine speakers but i would have a hard time You know, going back to those now after experiencing what I have, and there could be a time when I have something that makes my current speakers feel like they were, you know, not serious. But I guess it's just always upgrading your weakest link. So, you touched
0: on before getting a mix in and not having to do anything per se on the master. How often does that happen for you? Um, and sort of second question how do you know when a master is done
1: the first question it doesn't happen too often to be honest because like I said I can always do a little bit of rx work and it's pretty rare when people send me stuff that's so limited that it doesn't need to go any louder you know the problem is it's hard to do processing on stuff that's already some somewhat too heavily limited it's my opinion that trying to you know even if you do an EQ cut you're going to get overs a lot of times and then you have to add another limiter so I mean I feel like in general, you can get better results from a non-limited source, but some sometimes people have mixed into a limiter so specifically and aggressively that if they try to take that off, um, the mix doesn't sound the same. And for me to try to like recreate that is almost becomes pointless. The bummer in that situation becomes when, um, A, they want to do vinyl because heavily limited stuff doesn't translate to vinyl super well. It, it can be done, but it's, it becomes a compromise. And two, like, trying to tie A whole album together when you got limited stuff. It just gets messier, you know, when when you're stuck with this brick wall thing. I would say it's pretty rare when I do, you know, I don't think I've ever done absolutely nothing, you know, but there are some projects where I stay all digital. You know, I do my RX pass, maybe one EQ and then one limiter, and then like that's it. And then, of course, putting the record together, songs, song spacing, heads and tails metadata all the nerdy stuff that we do in mastering that people forget about until they have to do it one day and they panic and say how do i do all this stuff it's like well that's part of what i do it's it's not just playing with waves l2 and and all that good stuff but i'd say pretty rare what was the second question oh how do i know when it's done i don't know i have a pretty i don't have a template per se but i have a pretty rigid workflow and how i like to work whether i'm working with analog gear in the box you know i I try to i like to normalize my starting my files to a certain level so that it's feeding my analog chain roughly the same level or feeding my digital chain the same level unless something's already so limited that i don't want to backtrack that much and i just want to just do the abs but again that's like the one percent of projects um you know for me i just i'm done once i've done my rx pass and once it sounds as good as it can or, you know, I know you guys get this a lot too, but you get the Mix Engineer's reference mix, that the, the loud version that they've done. I mean, you want it to sound as good or better than that. Um, even little stuff like, you know, sometimes you'll get like a squashed mix from the Mix Engineer, but the intro will be like almost too dynamic, which I can't believe I'm saying. <laughs> but there's times when I bump up the intros a little bit, and I think that can also just give you the edge of... When they're comparing your master to the reference master, if that intro is less dynamic, if it's like a synth thing or something, you know, sometimes that just gives you the little bit of an edge. And not that I like to ruin dynamics, but honestly, I mean, I'm doing an album today where it's a rock I don't know, how, I don't even know how this happens. You know, it's a typical rock album, but like the third choruses are so much huger and louder than the start of the song. And it seems like it's the same instruments. Like, it's not like it's an acoustic intro and then the band kicks in. I'm like, it's almost one of those things where, like, the, whoever was mixing, it just kept turning stuff up and up as the song goes on. And I'm actually having to, you know, if I just, again, if I was, if I just AI'd it and ran it through the meters, the fronts of the songs are almost like three or four decibels too quiet compared to the end. And they're not, I don't think they're supposed to be. You know if i don't do that they're probably going to skip from song to song and be like man like it's too quiet but if i turn it all up then the ends are going to be way too squashed so i need to go in and kind of automate some of the song songs so i mean i guess it's done when i i feel like there's nothing else i have to add to it and i've done my quality control pass and if it needs to compete or beat the reference master then i make sure that's done or, or something on apple music and, uh, of course, when they sign off on it, that's, that's when it's done.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So you were mentioning doing some automation in the intro and whatnot. Would you ever process say a verse differently than a, a hook
1: or a chorus? Yeah. Occasionally I do. Cause like, you know, in wave lab, we have clip effects, so you can put plugins on certain sections of the song instead of having to be like on a track and like, you don't have to like split it up into different tracks. Which can get messy, so I mean it's not something I seek out doing, but occasionally I've, occasionally I've been mastering a song where like the end all of a sudden has this all this bloomy stuff going on that the rest of the song didn't. So I might try to tame that, or certainly I've mastered songs where, again I'm I'm not a loudness freak at all, but sometimes verses and intros are too dynamic, um, especially in, I found that intros can be too quiet because people mix the songs based on the chorus and the bridge and the last chorus but then like when you go to the intro there's just less stuff there but it needs to have a loud like if it's a song that needs to have a loud impactful intro before the first verse sometimes they just bump up that intro a, a db or two maybe, maybe more like a db or a db and a half but like that just makes that just fills out space that is there that makes it you know similar to like the third chorus or the end you know because i just feel like there's less elements you know there's not the keep maybe a song doesn't have the keyboard pads in the beginning that the, the ending has or less guitars or less stuff so i mean i i do a little bit of, i don't try to do automation but there's times when i'm listening where it's like i don't need to like increase the limiter by a db for the whole song i need to just make the intro a little louder and maybe the first chorus a little louder and the verses fall into place nicely and then the end where everything's happening that's hitting perfectly um, and again occasionally it's eq stuff which is easy to do in wave lab to section it off and put eq on that section I don't do it if, unless I have to I mean I'm you know wave lab just recently which is kind of crazy added like parameter automation for plugins on clips with version 11 and some people are like I don't know what they're doing. I, I never I, I didn't really feel the need for that feature, you know. All the automation that I'm feel like I need to do is simply just level, or sometimes giving a whole section like a different EQ, uh, whether it's thinning it out or taming the high end, or you know I, I don't feel like I'm going in and like changing the EQ of a song based on different parts or adjusting the limiter per part. I mean I, I might be feeding more into it at certain parts of the song cuz of the way the song is but I I'm, I'm not I feel like the parameter automation is really more for the mixing side of things but I guess everyone works differently like I've gotten revision notes where like you know the the, the second verse feels a little bloomy. it's like okay well I'll section that off and and thin it out a little bit yeah I see that a lot
2: too and I'm glad you guys brought that up where people will send mixes in where you know the 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 last you know minute and a half of the song is like five db louder than the first two thirds of the song and i feel like that's a tough thing um because you know if they want the whole song loud then you have to go through that whole spiel of well in order to do that we have to automate this first section up because often you'll send the master and they'll be like well you know the end is really hitting but that first (laughs) two minutes it it just sounds a
1: little bit quieter than you know uh, turnstile. So can you? It's one of those wanting their cake and eating it too, which is a weird saying. But right. It's like, it's like you have to leave. We're we're dealing with a ceiling and a fixed ceiling, so it's like, if you want the end to get bigger, you have to leave the other parts slightly less big, you know. Or if you want it to be all loud all the time, that you can do that too. But um, a for that to happen, I need to alter your mix because it's not doing it naturally. And be you know, the other thing too, you know, I think people are like spot listening so much now where it's like it's more exciting when everything's really loud when you're just skimming through a song. But like if you're going to sit down and listen to a record, do you really want it to be totally maxed out for that whole record? Because that can be fatiguing to listen to, you know, where it just never lets up. It's like, it's cool for when you're you know, think of think of yourself as the artist. You're doing, you're at your job. You're doing whatever you do. And then you just start spot listening to your mix and spot listening to something on Apple Music, which is not always a good decision. You know, maybe they're, it's sort of like the blind leading the blind sometimes with the loudness stuff. It's like everyone's just doing it, but does it's exciting when you skip around, but when you really listen to the full record, which I don't know if people do anymore, but, you know, it can be a little fatiguing when everything's just screaming at you the whole time it's like it's way more enjoyable when there's a little bit of breathing room and i can't think of ever encountering a listening device or stereo that didn't have a volume control on it to just set it where i want it to be
0: yeah if only the artist would trust the listener
1: to turn the volume up and down yeah i mean yeah there's so many variables but yeah you know for the most part everyone's thankfully everyone's well, for the most part, very easy to work with. And I get a lot of repeat clients that come to me because they like what I do and they were happy with their last project or their friend's project and stuff like that. So it's, it's you know, like I said, I feel like all the stuff we talk about are the exceptions. You know, it's not like this is an everyday battle, but it's more fun to talk about the exceptions and the battles than, hey, I mastered a record and they approved it on version one and then they've paid me and then I archived it. You know, that happens a lot, but... It's not a very exciting story <laughs> at least when we're when we're talking shop anyway yeah totally and
2: the thing the pitfalls with references can also be um the situation where you're you're being asked to match the volume or just you know general quality of a master high budget you know all the top names in the industry worked on it um but it's you know the thing you're working on is very diy very lo fi very you know not mixed great <laughs> but you're being asked to match the energy of this really expensive record and um you know that's a major challenge for us and and I know you guys probably work with a lot of self-funded artists just like me and you know we run into that um enough times to talk about it you know i feel like it's a cop out to be Blaming the client for the quality of their mix, you know, um, instead of just, you know, doing everything I possibly can uh, to satisfy them as far as what they want to hear in the master, which of course I'm doing, but sometimes you just, you can only do so much. Sure. So what are you guys thoughts on that? You know, like kind of how how far are you willing to go as far as telling the truth to a client whose mix is just not cutting it and they just, you know, they're never going to get what they're asking for.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've learned to, I I basically accept all projects as this is something that whoever mixed it loves, they did their best work, you know, unless people ask me for mix comments ahead of time, I just dive in and master it. Maybe if it's someone I've worked with and feel comfortable, I could say, hey, you know, the sibilance is kind of loud or... But I usually don't even do that, and usually that doesn't happen because they're doing great stuff. But for the most part, I just, if I get something in, I just assume it's some, they love it, they've done their best, and they just want me to make it as good as it can be. Um, okay, And a lot, that works 99% of the time, and then sometimes they get it back. Um, kind of like the project I mentioned earlier where I used to mix their records, and uh, then I just mastered it. They're like, it doesn't quite do this or that, and then then we have to get into how that's more of a mixing thing and, you know, that's not really something I can do in mastering. And if I can do it, I'll try to do it. Sometimes that solves it. Sometimes it it doesn't. Um, So, I mean, I I just, again, unless someone asks me for mixed notes, I I rarely give a comment. Um, But, you know, on the flip side, there's a guy that I work with a lot and uh, he mentioned that he was having problems with, exporting a song from logic pro or something and it was like an old session he rescued from GarageBand. a lot and he's doing it like you get a lot of DIYers now with covid and the tools are so easy i'm like can you just make sure like you listen to that because the vocals were like so out of time with the song i'm like i didn't know if like there was a bouncing problem you know like a glitch with a plug-in or something it was that the vocals were that out of time and it's not something i would just say to anybody because that could really offend a client but this was someone that I had worked with a lot and he's had problematic files before like he sent me mixes to master where like the reverb was muted for some reason because he's got this old laptop with logic and it just acts up but again I wouldn't think to say like was your reverb muted because I I don't know any better I'm just getting the song at face value and you know but you know he had to rebounce it to enable the reverbs, which happens once in a while when people are doing it themselves. And uh, so it was one of those cases where we had a history of him having problems with exporting mixes and not listening to them. So I just had to see if it was that situation again, and, and it actually wasn't. But it, it prompted him to like listen, <coughs> listen with a different perspective and fix some of the vocal timing problems because they were pretty far out. It was like it was almost like math rock kind of stuff like when it was supposed to be more like <laughs> traditional folk stuff i could just tell something was i was like this feels a little bit off but again i wouldn't just do that to like a new client or even most clients it was just a rare case where we had a history of, of problems and and i knew that he wouldn't be offended if i asked and and he thanked me for speaking up about the vocal timing feeling off um but again not something I like you know i just again assume everyone loves their mixes and and on my project form there is a place for notes so people might say you know you may need to consider doing this or that people can leave notes but you know I've heard of stories where people send their stuff I mean I, I have a client now because the previous mastering engineer they used just totally you know came back with mixed mixed comments that were like offensive to them and rubbed them the wrong way to the point where they're they found a different mastering engineer. So I would say I don't do that. Again, these are extreme exceptions, but I had a case where, and again, I didn't know if it was a case of when the mixes for mastering were made that a problem occurred, but your typical pop rock band and a song opened with a snare drum thing, and it sounded like there was a flanger on the snare, but what it was is the something with the drum trigger and the real snare or multiple samples just totally being phasy and weird i'm like it sounds like you guys have a phaser on your snare is that intentional or not and like it turned out you know the mix engineer had to go back and reprint all the mixes with i don't know what he he did but you know i was hearing like throughout the song it's just like the snares are just changing like fate like just again it sounds like a flanger plugin on the snare and i'm like if that's intentional great i'll master it but to me it seems weird because it wasn't musical at all it was just very odd i'm like if you guys want that i'll totally master this but before i get started i need to just check that everybody's signed off on this because you know i'm going to invest a lot of time working on these files and i'm happy to do that but if it's like oops we didn't notice that the snare sampler was acting up and and flanging all the snare hits um, so here's some new files like i didn't want to get in that situation so I was kind of protecting myself on that one just to not it's it's crazy it came to your desk
0: like that 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 no yeah. one actually spot checked it to make yeah. sure that the mix is printed okay even just yeah. you know needle dropping through the song
1: yeah and i'm not it wasn't subtle it was like very overt like to the point where i couldn't tell if they were intentionally doing like an 80s thing or if it was just but yeah it was something with the drum sampling software being out of sync with with the real snare or other samples i have no idea but they ended up fixing it i'm like okay I'm, gl- I'm glad i said something there because i don't know how you can not hear it but
2: on well, that but instance, again so the client probably really appreciated that so that's yeah and that's it was a guys, win <laughs>
1: yeah it was guys that i had worked with for a long time it was a new band that they started but it was someone again i had some trust with where i knew i could ask them that whereas with newer clients that's riskier you know it's a riskier venture if you want to come out swinging and turn them off but for me it was more of just like hey did everyone listen to this or not I actually quit an album because it was kind of a it got kind of messy but you know one song it's like the mix engineer opened up their pro tool session bounced the no limiter version but didn't check his routing and I don't know if he had analog routing going on or just weird busing but the mix was so like uh, I forgot what it was I'm like there's no way this is right You know, like something that really got screwed up when it got bounced, like the routing or something. It's like, I understand those mistakes happen, but it's crazy how much files, at least I get, that people haven't listened to yet. Even though I have a little note on the website, like, can you listen to the files? But everyone's in a hurry. People are passing around Google Drive links without listening to stuff. And it's just like, you know, we need to slow down and make sure that You know, what's being sent has been checked before someone else gets started on it. Obviously, we're
2: all listening in real time when we're loading, you know, masters through analog processing. But do you both listen to every post-export file that you print? So basically, um, you know, after you record the real-time master, if you're like me, you know, it's just like a whole file. And then I just kind of dump it into a sample rate converter and spit it out. And I usually do not listen to it again um, after I've recorded it real time. Sometimes I will if it's a DDP or if it's a vinyl pre-master, I'll listen to the sides all the way through on the final export. But if it's just a digital file, I'll usually trust my workstation to just export a file and not listen to it again afterward. Because if I had to do that on everything, I'd, I'd be in the studio probably 20 hours a day. Do, what do you guys do as far as final QC? I
1: listen to the the master high resolution one, you know, with headphones, and make sure there's no issues. Um, but the downstream ones are there's only dither being applied, and I've proven, you know, over the years that I've never had an issue with that. And in a perfect world, I'd love to hire someone to help with with QC, and I know that's part of our job. But you know, it's to a point where I QC see it after the, the heaviest lifting is done so that if there is going to be a problem, I'm going to catch it. And it's to, when I do render all the other formats, it's it's to a point where an issue isn't going to happen. And WaveLab also has, I could probably talk about this. I don't know, I don't know when you guys are going to release this, but WaveLab 12 is coming out sooner than later. And there's a cool new feature related to null testing, um, what you've rendered versus what you are hearing on playback because those are not always the same things you know you can what you hear on playback is one thing what gets rendered could be totally different but basically i stick to a core group of plugins that i know and trust and 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 also test you know whether it's a new plugin or an update i have a render test montage in wave lab that i kind of stress test the worst scenarios of overlapping songs and and gapless stuff like that just to make sure it's going to render correctly and I don't use any plugins that have glitches because that's even if it's not a problem on a normal record with spaces between the songs when I get that record that has overlapping songs I don't want that I don't want to have to work around that so I basically stick to plugins I know and trust and, and and that but yeah I mean I do listen to the master render you know and then You know, I deliver a lot of files. So listening to everyone is not um, practical, sometimes not possible, but I've never had an issue.
0: I I do the same thing. I I don't listen to the downstream masters. Um, Like Justin said, it's like I've never had an issue anywhere down the road, although I will listen to the vinyl sides in their entirety. Just to make sure that they printed right because i feel like i in my workflow there's they're done a little bit differently than the regular digital masters it's a, a sort of different process so um I, although I've, I've never had any issues with them i feel like if i stop checking them that's my um cue for something to actually happen to it when you know i don't listen to it so yeah
2: right yeah i mean the client's going to listen to it obviously after the fact i have one you know, horror story that I think I actually mentioned this to Matt when it happened. Um, it's, it's a few years ago now, but um, the only time this has ever gotten me, there was a client that I think it was just kind of a, um, it was a very random anomaly thing that happened where there was just a burst of white noise that showed up on a post-dithered file and it was sent to the client for an approval but at this point it was like a v3 file based on just like a little half a second adjustment uh, as far as the gap between songs so i guess the client just didn't feel like they needed to listen to it because they trusted that i could move a file half a second back but god but you know reached down and he dropped a little speck of white noise uh, at the top of this track, and it made it onto a DDP, which I also, you know, provide a DDP player to clients to listen to the DDP. But it, lo and behold, they made it onto a CD that was pressed. Oof. And yeah, the pitchforks were coming at me left and right, and I had to refund the money. It was not a cool thing. That was the one horror story and, you know, going, I guess, 16 years of of being a mastering engineer, where I actually had to refund a project and... It, it haunts me to this day which is the motivation for that question
1: <laughs> yeah I have I guess I have two one is a lot one was when I first started using Wavelab um I had a terrible workflow at the time and I didn't fully understand how the program worked but I managed to burn us because I mo- I had archived the session to my archive drive again this is probably 2010. somehow I managed to create a DDP or maybe it was even the CDR master that instead of being the full album, it was the same song over and over. Because when I opened up the set, again, this one happened now because I understand wave lab and have a better workflow. But when I opened up the montage, it said, you know, this file's missing. Where is it? And I said, it's right here. And then I thought that wave lab or I, I'm not blaming wave lab, but instead of it linking all the songs correctly, it, it linked the one song to all the tracks. So basically it was the same song and, um, luckily, it was a short-run CD at a place that I noticed. I just paid for the the new CDs to be made with the correct the correction. And then more recently, it was a case where the vinyl master had a different song order, like a song from side B went up to side A, just to kind of shorten the sides, and we maybe removed a. We had to resequence it for vinyl, like quite a bit more than you normally would. And I don't know what happened, but there was a very weird crossfade but i didn't catch it the client didn't catch it the the, um one of the guys at the pressing plant reached out i I think he was listening to the to the mother like the 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 stamper which i think you can do he was just like hey this you know song three there's this weird part i'm just checking and sure enough like the song just like crossfaded into itself at some point you know where it just sounded really messed up like non-music it was a rootsy album so like not trying to do anything fancy it was like i don't even know what happened um, but then i looked at, i opened up my montage and sure enough i I made a mistake um and that was a more recent thing and i paid luckily they didn't press any records yet but i paid the pressing plant to recut and replate that side
0: and this is why you don't hire uh vinyl brokers because that yeah. never would they never call you for something like well, that this was
1: This is a very (laughs) high quality pressing plant in the US that I've done a lot of work with. So the guy had my email. He knew that I had done the record and he just reached out to me because he's like, this sounds funky. Um, And sure enough, it did. But that's, you know, again, you know, um, what, 14 years officially, but probably more like 20, 25 years. Having only two stories out of all those years that I can think of is pretty good. I've had a handful of projects where I've said, I'm not the right person for this. You know, I don't send an invoice till after the record's done, but I had one person have such a meltdown that I refunded them their money, let them keep the masters and just said, I don't think we can work together anymore because it was getting into like mental health type stuff. And I'm I'm obviously very um, aware and compassionate and, and empathetic about that stuff, but you reach a point where it's like, I don't think it was the music. I think it was anyone that would have. And uh, I'm not happy about that situation, but I just had, you know, I I can't be a therapist and um, and a mastering engineer at the same time. I I keep bringing up these stories that almost never happen. Like I said, 99% of projects are approved on version one or, hey, can you adjust the song spacing version two done and everything's great. But, you know, I think we're talking about fringe cases like that. And, you know, I have had a few cases where I just either don't send an invoice and say we're done. Or there was one project that, like I said, it got finished. And then a few days later, they started second-guessing. Everything was unraveling. And it's like... And this was already after a, a very roller coaster ride to get to the final version. I was just like, I don't think anything's going to work here for this person i think it's not even the music it's something else going on and uh i just didn't i didn't have it in me at the time to to navigate that any further i just had to cut my losses and you know it was a learning experience and uh you know i didn't i didn't remove the dropbox links or anything if if they change their mind again and want to use it it's there but i just need to i need to be free from this situation so those th- those things do happen but again very few over the two decades or so i mean it's like can count them on one hand for sure but once in a while you're just not a good match for somebody i mean it happens to me you know in real life too like a couple years ago we got we tried to get a new furnace and it just kept giving error messages on the thermostat and the company kept trying to fix it and after like three or four no after like four or five visits we're just like this furnace is a lemon like you can either replace it entirely or we can part ways and we parted ways and that that those things just happen sometimes and it's just the nature of of people working together so
2: yeah that that's the good stuff uh that we try and provide on this podcast we want to hear about the fringe stories that will provide some comfort to fellow engineers out there (laughs) who uh They have bad experiences, and this way they don't feel like it's you know only them. It happens to everybody.
1: Yeah, I mean you can set yourself up for fairly smooth sailing, but you know occasionally things come up, and you know even to you know to everybody I think so. It's it's good to be able to talk about them and not just you know. Again, I, I have a pretty high version one approval rate, but occasionally things go uh, take a left turn whether again like the guy that just had his phone set to mono which is boosting you know boosting the level by probably three decibels which is going to cause you know clipping on something that's mastered and then the other thing there he was comparing it to some older records that were not digitally limited at all so when he put it in mono it it wasn't clipping because they're like super old school records um but his being a little more modern and we had set a standard by doing a single song first so I mean I did the single and he loved it. And then when I did the record, it was these two songs that were more sparse. And I even did, you know, I mastered them appropriately where they relax a little bit. But due to their nature, the mono button on his phone was, was making a clip. And we just got to learn how to navigate those things. And uh, they do come up once in a while. But...
0: Well, awesome. I think, I think we hit everything we wanted to hit. Thank you so much, Justin, for doing this and taking the
1: time to hang with us yeah i'm glad you guys are doing this podcast like it's really well produced the graphics look good i I think there's definitely a space for a mastering podcast right now and uh you guys are fulfilling it i mean we had the square cad podcast many years ago and some of the other audio podcasts are good too but i think you guys are filling a a much needed void with this Uh, i look forward to seeing where you guys take it well thanks
0: yeah we have a laundry list of all these other engineers we want to um, interview, so yeah, I don't think uh, it's just going to be, you know, eight episodes and then we're done.
1: Awesome. Well, I listen to a lot of podcasts because when I'm not in the studio, it's what all I can handle is podcasts. So I love—I have a nice rotation and podcasts, and yours was a nice addition to that.
0: I can't make the scene, the scene.